As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast where we will try to think through just that. How can Christians engage with questions of life, death and everything else in between? My name is Tim Wyatt and every episode I call up my dad, John Wyatt, to discuss issues in healthcare, ethics, technology, science, faith and more. I'm a religious and social affairs journalist, while he is a doctor, a professor of ethics and a writer and speaker on some of these issues. In other words, he's the expert but I'm here to ask the stupid questions, and hopefully some not so stupid, that help make sense of it all. For many years, death has been described as perhaps the final taboo in British society. Rarely is it deemed polite to mention the uncomfortable fact that one day we all will die, let alone try to bring faith or spirituality into that conversation. But in the midst of a pandemic, which has already claimed over 50,000 lives in Britain in various ways, is that changing? And how as Christians can we be modelling a different way to approach death and to serve those in their final days, in these stressful and frightening times we now live in? In this episode of Matters of Life and Death, we resolutely break that taboo, and we talk about death, about dying, and about spiritual care. Let's get into it. So John, thanks for dialing in again. We wanted to talk today, starting off by talking about uh, death. It's often an uncomfortable subject, Christians and non-Christians alike, but you think that actually attitudes might be changing partly as a result of the pandemic. Yes, it's really interesting that um, really before the pandemic uh, started, I think general attitudes towards death were in in general society that one just didn't talk about it it was it was it has been a huge taboo subject um in some ways death has replaced sex as being a topic that we just don't talk about in polite company and uh we try to avoid the reality of it and and of course the reality is most people die in a hospital uh, rather than in the community um and uh, instead of death being a social event as it used to be uh, now it's something that has become very medicalized and which just takes place behind uh, curtains on a ward. Uh, but I think that since the pandemic uh, came, inevitably, it, um, death has become a much greater focus of attention. Um, and uh, not least the sort of the sad litany every day about uh, people monitoring the number of deaths there have been in the previous period and watching the graphs. 
so, so there's a lot of discussion about death and death in intensive care and deaths in the care homes and so on. But also, I, I think, of course, at a personal level, many of us have been personally affected by deaths of people from COVID-19. There've been some very public figures who've died, haven't there? And, and um, personally, a friend of mine, Peter Hart, uh, who was a musician who played in the All Souls Orchestra and I'd known for many years, he, uh, he sadly died. Uh, he was a paramedic and uh, was probably infected in the course of his work. He was in intensive care unit um, in South London for many weeks, but sadly uh, has died. So I, I think inevitably death has been forced into consciousness uh, for many people. It's none of those other sad parallels to wartime, isn't it? It's one of those rare events, the pandemic, in which it really does affect everyone's lives up and down the country, and in this case, around the world as well. I suspect, sadly, by the time the dust has settled, there won't be very many people in the UK who don't know of someone um, who has sadly passed away, maybe a relative, maybe a friend of a friend, maybe someone from work. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, people have always been dying individually, um, and, and people have been facing bereavement and terminal illness and all the rest. But uh, what is different now is everybody's facing this. This is, this is a universal experience and uh, sadly one happening across the world. And I guess a key difference to how society talked or rather didn't talk about death before was that I think most of us assumed that when our turn came to die, it would be as a result of a kind of slow decline in, in old age possibly dementia involved, maybe cancer, and it would be something that could be foreseen months, maybe even years in advance. Whereas the tragic reality now is that people are dying incredibly quickly, sometimes as little as a few days after being admitted to hospital with COVID. Yes, that's right. So certainly in Western uh, nations with an ageing population, the majority of people who, who die are at the end of life and they die from a chronic either a a condition such as cancer, a chronic progressive condition, or a chronic degenerative condition like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease. Um, So it's quite unusual for people to die acutely of infection, although, of course, it has always happened, including in flu epidemics. But um, I I wrote a book about dying well a couple of years ago, and when I was writing that book, I was only thinking about people who knew they were dying over and had plan, had time to plan. You know, I was thinking of someone dying from cancer. Um, and when the pandemic came, I suddenly had to think, actually, you know, that book is, is, is rather inappropriate in, in many ways um, for this current situation, because the reality of the current situation is that someone can develop a fever um, feel a little bit unwell, and then they can deteriorate very rapidly over the space of a, a day or two or a bit longer. And um, then they are developed respiratory distress, they're admitted to hospital. The next thing, they're being admitted to the intensive care unit and then they die. Uh, so um, the idea that one might be struck down uh, quite rapidly and, and there wouldn't be time to adjust to the fact that you were, had a terminal illness. That, that This is really something quite new. Hmm. What really fascinates me is that while it is 
it feels quite new for us here in the comfortable West. The, the kind of historical reality is that for most of the history of humankind, uh, sudden and unexpected death has been a kind of ever-present looming danger. And that you could really see that really clearly. We touched on this in an earlier episode, but when you read back uh, from through church history and see what Christians were writing and concerned about, there was a real concern and fear that that someone, you might die, you might be struck down uh, in, all of a sudden without enough time to have your kind of affairs put in order, spiritual or otherwise. That's absolutely right. And, um, you, you know, you only have to go back a couple of hundred years and uh, many people would have died uh, relatively sudden death, either because of an accident or because of infection um, or because of some other uh, severe and acute illness. So so it's really only been in the last 50, 60, 70 years that uh, advances in medical science and in social circumstances generally has, has meant that most of us can look forward to, uh, or thought we could look forward to, dying of old age um, and so in some ways I think this is a as we've talked about before this is a this is a sudden shock and reminder uh, to come back to what in, in many ways is the normal situation to to be having to live with recognized with the possibility of sudden death uh, affecting ourselves or affecting our loved ones um, in some way, this is the way that Christians have always had to live, and, and this is something that perhaps we're having to relearn now. Hmm. And so what kind of practical things can we do if we want to live as though our end might be near? What, what, how would that look like? How would we live differently? Well, it's a really interesting question, and it's something that I've reflected about and, and tried to write about. Um, I think that what it means is is that we have to prepare ourselves for the possibility of death. And that, in particular, that means we need to be talking about it and we need to be talking about it with our loved ones and with our closest friends. Um, and to be thinking about this question of how would I like to die? Uh, and, and there are some very real questions to ask uh, and, and, and things to discuss. Um, if I became unwell over the next few days, um, would I want absolutely everything to be done for me? Would I want to be admitted to a hospital? Would I want to say I, I want to have the very best chance, I'm prepared to go through whatever treatment, uh, I want to be admitted to the intensive care unit, I want to have every possibility? Or would I say, actually, because of my age and because of comorbidities and so on, my my chances of survival are, are relatively small if I if I am diagnosed with acute COVID infection, particularly if I get severe respiratory complications. And maybe um, the best thing for me would be, I say, I, I would want to be kept comfortable. I would want to have basic nursing care and receive oxygen um, and pain relief. But actually, I wouldn't want to be admitted to an intensive care unit. I wouldn't want to have... Uh, I, I think to die in an intensive care unit is, is a terrible thing and I, I want to avoid that if possible. What would you say to people who agree that that is a good conversation to have but just cannot imagine how you would bring that up with a loved one, whether on either end, whether you're the person who wants to share your wishes or whether you have a relative that you want to find out what their wishes are? Well, absolutely. It's not exactly the sort of thing you sort of drop into a casual conversation, isn't it? Oh, by the way, how would you like to die? Um, you know, it, 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 it 
takes a certain amount of care and thought about how to have these conversations. And, and there's a sense in which, you know, there's no easy way to have these difficult conversations. It's something I learned, you know, as a, as a paediatrician, having uh, often I was the specialist in giving bad news. You know, the terrible thing about becoming a senior doctor is that when you're a junior doctor and there's bad news to give, then um, if it's good news, then the junior doctors will say, you know, we just had the scan result and it's absolutely normal and we're just very pleased and everything. But if it's bad news, then the junior doctor says, oh, well, I think you should talk to Professor Wyatt. And so <laughs> I get wheeled in and my job is basically to give the bad news and say, well, we're terribly sorry, but the brain scan shows severe brain damage which can't be repaired um, or that your baby has a terminal condition or whatever. Um, and, and what I came to the conclusion was that there was no good way of having these difficult conversations, but there were some ways that were worse than others. And so um, what you needed to do is to find find ways of of talking about it. So And, and so the sort of standard advice is, first of all, choose your setting. Um, say, look, uh, we need to have a, a conversation about some serious things. Could we set aside, you know, Friday afternoon or to talk about this so plan ahead let's have this difficult conversation um, prepare in advance what is it I actually want to say what, what are the uh, if we're talking about my own death and dying then then what 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 are my own views or what do I want to talk about what, what would I like to discuss um, if you're trying to raise it with with a loved one, then the sort of questions to ask, as to say, the sort of way of introducing the subject might be, well, you know, there's a lot about death on the um, on the television, uh, and I just wondered whether we could talk about this ourselves and how it might touch us. Um, you know, would it be all right if we just just talked about how you might feel if if we knew that we you were infected with the virus? And in general, my my experience is, although it's difficult to get started on these conversations, actually for many people it's a relief because obviously these things are often boiling up inside us and often there are all kinds of unspoken fears and concerns. And just to be able to talk about it openly uh, in, a, in a fairly unemotional way and just honestly and share together, many people find it as a huge relief. Hmm. And I guess in some way in a strange way, the coronavirus pandemic, as you say, is a kind of way into these conversations, which are absolutely useful to have in our current circumstance. But you seem to be saying we should probably be having these conversations more even in everyday life before and after the pandemic. That's absolutely right. You see, the whole approach um, of modern healthcare is that patient choice and patient self-determination is absolutely foundational. That, that individual patients have their own views and philosophies and uh, they should be able, when it comes to end-of-life care, they should be able as much as possible to express their own wishes as to how they wish to be treated at the end of life. Um, but in order to facilitate this, uh, what's become described as advanced care planning is, is really important. I mean... Uh, it's it's really important to have these conversations and basically it's a three-way conversation it's a conversation between the individual the the patient or the potential patient with their relatives and loved ones and then with the health team and it's really that three-way conversation which needs to be facilitated um, in in whatever way it can be 
is it actually like when someone arrives in a hospital and they're having this conversation with health professionals? What are the kind of things that might be talked about? Well, if if we just put coronavirus on the side and just talk generally about what would happen if someone was admitted to hospital as an emergency, say through the A&E department, but it rapidly transpired that they had a a very severe and potentially life-threatening illness. Um, One of the essential things that health professionals want to talk to patients about is what's often called ceilings of care. In other words, what level of care uh, would you wish to receive. Everybody is is going to receive the very best possible care, but there are different levels of care. So at the most basic level, there's there's the question of should the person be admitted to hospital at all? um, Or would it be better for them to be cared for at home? Uh, And this is a huge issue, of course, for elderly people who are diagnosed with coronavirus. so for many people, if it's clear that they've got a terminal illness, actually hospital is not the place for them. The best place for them is to receive proper palliative care in the community. Um, and, and these days it's possible to provide excellent uh, palliative care in people's homes or in institutions such as, as nursing homes or care homes. So there, the first question is, do you, do you need to be admitted to hospital? The, the second question is, if you are admitted to hospital, then what level of care should you be receiving? Is it best that you receive just basic nursing care and palliative care uh, without active medical treatment? That's the next level. Or the next level up above that is, yes, I want to receive every active medical treatment in terms of drugs, antibiotics, other kinds of maybe experimental drugs and, and drug treatments and so on. Uh, the next level up that is if you have respiratory difficulties, do you want to actually have respiratory support? And there's something called CPAP, continuous positive airways pressure, which is given by a mask. And that means that quite uncomfortable. A mask is strapped very tightly onto your face and it basically has to stay there pretty well continuously. So as you can imagine, that's uncomfortable and gets in the way and it's unpleasant. But that certainly improves um, people with respiratory failure, with breathing difficulties. And then beyond CPAP is the question of uh, do you want to be admitted to the intensive care unit when basically you, you would be put to sleep and put into, or at least put into a deep sedation. A tube would be inserted into your trachea and you'd be connected up to mechanical ventilation and very invasive monitoring. And then beyond that, there's even another, if you were desperately sick in ITU, would you be prepared to go up to the next level? And that's something called ECMO, which stands for extra corporeal membrane oxygenation which is a kind of very very invasive life support system which involves basically being hooked up to a heart lung bypass machine um, as a way of being kept alive temporarily until your lungs recover so so there's a whole series of of, of things of care and really in theory the doctors would be wanting to have this conversation with the patient uh, trying to explain what it involves and, and and, and letting the patient, uh, together with the relatives, decide what is the best for them. Of, of course, if you then translate this into the typical situation in a COVID um, infection, so here is somebody who's acutely unwell, they've got a fever, they've got a viremia, they're feeling absolutely terrible, and they've also got severe breathing difficulties. They're gasping for breath, they may be hypoxic and therefore confused, and, and anxious 
and they're rushed in an ambulance and they've arrived in A&E and they're sweating and they're breathless. And of course you can imagine, it's just not possible to have this kind of conversation about ceilings of care and explaining what's the difference between CPAP and mechanical ventilation and so on. Uh, it's too late. Um, these conversations need to have been had before. Um, and that's why uh, I, I feel, you know, it's really important if there are people who are vulnerable and at risk of of, of being admitted to hospital that we have this kind of conversation uh, beforehand in order to talk about uh, what kind of care is available and what, what we would think is appropriate for us. We, we touched on this in an earlier episode, um, Matters of Life and Death, about the kind of ethics of triage and, as you talked about, ascertaining which type of treatment is right and the idea that not all treatment is appropriate for all people. But I guess people often struggle with that idea. I mean, even as you said, you know, levels of care, it's not about quality of care. Whatever level they chose, they're going to get high quality care, but about what type of care. But there's been lots of controversy around things like the Liverpool care pathway and do not resuscitate orders. And people are often very afraid that particularly the elderly or the the vulnerable, when they arrive in hospital, they, there's a lot of fear around, am I going to be kind of switched off? Am I going to be actually looked after properly? Will I be allowed to die? All that kind of thing. Yes, uh, you're right. There is a lot of um, controversy. I'm afraid a lot of misinformation and, and sometimes the media. I mean, there was a huge kind of campaign about the Liverpool Care Pathway, which I'm afraid was by and large, very unhelpful and just led to a whole lot of, uh, of greater concerns uh, amongst people admitted to hospital. Um, I, I think that uh, it, what's interesting to me is I've, I've had lots of conversations, particularly with older people, including a lot of older Christian people, is that people's fears tend to divide into two opposite camps. You know, there's one group who are very frightful, frightened, that they'll basically be abandoned and and just because I'm old you know the health service will wash its hands of me and say oh well you're just you're of no value to society so we're not going to give you proper care we're just going to abandon you and leave you in a bed somewhere to molder or and maybe you're not even going to feed me or you know you're going to starve me to death or you're going to dehydrate me and I'm terrified about that and therefore I'm going to insist that I have every possible treatment because otherwise I feel I'm being abandoned and just um treated as as being worthless and then there are people who express the exactly the opposite fear and that is i'm terrified that i'm going to be hooked up to a whole load of machines and kept alive and people won't allow me to die and, and they won't allow me to make my choices and i'll just be treated and and and, and, and admitted to the intensive care unit so so different people have very different fears and it's this is part of the reason why we feel that allowing people to express their own wishes um, and have a chance to discuss this in advance and express uh, in advance. So one of the things that I've been trying to encourage and promote is what's called a statement of values, um, whereby I encourage people to write down in advance, like a letter to the medical professionals that says, these are the things that are really important to me. These are the things I'm worried about. I'm worried that I'm going to be abandoned. I'm worried that I'm not going to get proper care. You know, So please make sure that everything that is would be valuable and, and would help my, my care is is provided um, but but in, in the case that it's clear that I'm dying I don't want to be kept alive unnecessarily and I don't want to be admitted to an intensive care unit 
But also, these are the people who are important to me. I, it would be very important that I've been put in contact with the pastor of my local church or these people in my family. I want to be, them to be able to visit me and to have contact with me and so on. So that's something called an advanced statement, which I think is a really helpful way. It's not a legally binding document, but it is a way of communicating our wishes and desires uh, to the medical and professional team. And is it your experience that medical professionals, particularly, it's quite likely they won't share our Christian faith, take those kind of things seriously? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, of course, one can't say absolutely everybody in, a, in every situation provides ideal care. But the vast majority of health professionals genuinely want to do what is in the best interest of the patient in front of them. And wherever possible, uh, they want to follow their wishes and and ease their concerns. And I think there have been many stories coming out of the COVID um, epidemic, haven't there, of people who've been immensely touched by the level of care and compassion that, um, you know, anonymous NHS staff have been providing. You mentioned earlier how important the role relatives play in this, both in having conversations, uh, ideally before someone falls ill, but also if someone is in a hospital, has been admitted to hospital and is unable to express their own wishes, family uh, are really key people that the medical professionals want to talk to. And, and what we've obviously found is really, really difficult about the coronavirus pandemic is that almost all hospitals have been locked down uh, to, to family. And so once uh, uh, a relative is admitted to a hospital, even if they're not necessarily suffering from COVID themselves, it's, it's impossible in many cases for, for friends and family to get inside to visit them or to communicate with, with the healthcare professionals. And I, I came across this issue most notably because I've recently been doing some reporting about the role of hospital chaplains during coronavirus. And, and, it, and what was a surprising thing that came out was that they, they play a really critical role as a as a bridge between the clinical team inside the ward and the hospital outside, which I was quite surprised about. Yeah, it's really fascinating, I think, the things that you've been finding out, because just as a bit of background, I think it's true to say that before this epidemic, there were lots of questions about the role of hospital chaplains in the modern NHS. And there's certainly been some voices, particularly coming from the sort of secularist extreme who are saying they think it's outrageous that um, the NHS pays for these religious professionals uh, working in hospitals and that really they have no role at all. Uh, so I was very interested to hear what you were saying about how chaplains have been discovering uh, an important role in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah, what, what was really I was struck by as well is that the chaplains, even though some of the work has been is similar to what was they were doing before, there was a real sense that they had been energised by the pandemic, and that lots of them said words along the lines of "This is why I was ordained a priest." You know, this is a privilege. This is the you know not quite, but this is almost the the high point. Not that they'd ever use that language of of their vocation. That in, that being this at the at the coal face on the front line had um, in somehow kind of encapsulated the very core of why it was they decided to go into this vocation, this profession in the first place. Yes, and it's interesting again, isn't it, that uh, there are so interesting parallels here with, with past, you know, with the, with the plague, uh, where priests were a very, played often in medieval period, the priests played a very significant role in bringing the community together, but also in in sort of ministering 
to, to dying people. So isn't it fascinating that in this modern plague, uh, the hospital chaplains are finding a role? Mm. And a lot of them have been, that's been very practical things like, you know, getting, bringing iPads to a, to a patient's bedside and, and facilitating a FaceTime call with relatives who are back home and aren't allowed to come in to visit. Um, and I've also t- spoke to chaplains who told me that they had spent many hours on the phones kind of counselling and pastoring relatives as well, particularly those who have been bereaved um, or are kind of struggling with the, re- with the restrictions and lacking in information about what's going on in the hospital and how their, how their relative is doing. And so they've been this kind of conduit um, as the, almost the only non-clinical staff who are actually allowed onto wards. They've, played, they've kind of taken on this really unexpectedly pivotal role. So even though they've had to wear PPE, all the full protective gear, um, it, it's again fascinating that, as you say, that, that although uh, relatives, families, friends have all been banned, here is this non-clinical person in full PPE who is, who is given permission to go into the ITU and into the COVID critical areas. Yeah, and I think a lot of them were quite concerned. They told me about how you can do pastoral care when you're working behind layers of surgical gowns and masks and goggles and face shields and visors. Um, and it, I think it clearly does. I mean, everyone who, who's ever tried on PPE will know that it makes everything you do much more difficult, but particularly because a lot of pastoral work is about the nonverbal communications, the power of a smile, um, you know, simply touching someone which you can obviously no longer do and so some of the chaplains told me they, they were having to kind of almost rethink how they do interaction with patients you know rather than ex- expressing your your happiness at someone getting better through nonverbal cues one of them was saying he had to keep telling himself to verbalize everything you know I am happy it makes me feel happy to see you so much better than you were yesterday when mm. all of that communication could have previously been sent in a kind of in a split second in a smile and a and, and, and the importance of the eyes as being one of the few, few things that you can still see through PPE. And actually, one chaplaincy said when he, had, when he was training at Theological College, his lecturer had told him that the eyes were the window of the soul. And he mm. really had that kind of like emphasised to him now is that, you know, he told me as long as you can get that eye to eye contact, even if there is lots of gloves and masks going on around it, you can still establish that human connection. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And I think you also said there was some, uh, somebody said about how weeping with a, with a mask on um, and how being unable to wipe your eyes or uh, wipe away the tears and uh, describing the tears running down. The, well, this is the staff, you know, who are weeping at, yeah, at, a, at a, a service health staff. Yeah, some of it is incredibly, incredibly moving, actually. I mean, there was one chaplain uh, who wrote a little kind of account for his hospital newsletter about what it'd been like and very raw, very honest about finding staff quietly crying in the corners of the of the hospital and just overwhelmed by it all. And and he said the first time a COVID-19 patient had died on one of his wards together, he had gathered all the doctors and the nurses and the porters all together around this man's bed and they'd bowed their heads and he had kind of recited a psalm and then the Lord's Prayer um, and he said as he was you know everyone including lots of people who weren't Christians joined in with the Lord's Prayer and as he was his, he was saying the Lord's Prayer he said he, I began to notice tears running down the sides of their faces uh, it seemed particularly cruel that they cannot even wipe away the tears 
because of the presence of all the PPE equipment and the risk of infection, the tears soak into the sides of their masks. And it just really struck me as a really kind of poignant and powerful example of incarnational ministry that the chaplains, the clergy aren't safely tucked away in an office somewhere, but they are literally there undergoing the same experience, standing on the same ward, wearing the same PPE and weeping alongside the same staff. You're absolutely right. That is, isn't that a wonderful example of incarnational care? And, and of course, you know, this is one of the unique, um, powerful aspects of Christian theology, that, that Jesus is the one who doesn't explain away the mystery of death, but he weeps at the graveside. And so uh, you can see that many, many people, health professionals, who've many of whom have been deeply affected by watching uh, colleagues uh, who've been affected and some of them have died under their care, uh, this does prov- produce profound feelings of, of raw emotions and uh, sometimes feelings of failure and defeat and frustration and fatigue. And to have somebody just sensitive who, who, with whom you're allowed to express these emotions, who is, who is authorised uh, and, and also to express comfort, that's a very powerful, very powerful reality. really interesting is that the chaplains told me many of them unprompted are the same thing that actually since the pandemic had started almost paradoxically the bulk of their work had shifted where before it was primarily all patient focused now they were spending most of their time looking after the staff the hospital of the hospital the, the nurses the doctors the porters the cleaners ev- everyone involved and they, there's this idea uh, which they kind of inspired by seeing colleagues in Italian hospitals who were obviously a few weeks ahead of us in the pandemic uh, where they set up these rooms that are sometimes called wobble rooms uh, where they're places where doctors and nurses can go in the middle of a shift if they're having a bit of a wobble if they're feeling overwhelmed if they need to have a bit of a cry um, and, and so several chapters told me they used other names sometimes safe spaces or staff zones pause for thought room where it's somewhere where there's no patients you can just go away uh, you can sit down, you can have a cup of tea, uh, maybe you can eat some of the hordes of chocolate that's been donated to your hospital and there is a chaplain there who can just talk about how you're feeling and just sit and listen, hold your hand, pray with you if appropriate and how, you know, this is the kind of thing that didn't really exist in hospitals before. These are quite a new idea, at least it seemed to me, but that the staff had really appreciated the fact that there was someone, as you said, who was there at their side specifically looking out for them and I think what is so good about this is it's a real reminder of the power of holistic care. You know, rather than separating out the physical and the psychological and the relational and the spiritual, uh, to be able to see how all these aspects uh, are integrated. And I, I think it's one of the glories of the NHS at its best um, that because of this Christian and spiritual input, uh, it, it is possible to provide a uh, genuinely holistic care that deals with all aspects of our humanity. And as you mentioned, it's something that is seriously being questioned by in some quarters, you know, the tradition of having chaplains in every NHS hospital paid for by the taxpayer is uh, is in some circles controversial, or at least some people would say, is it really necessary? 
uh, and they're often kind of reduced simply to providing specific spiritual needs so you know you have an imam on call if you have a muslim patient who needs to do something muslim and you have a, a roman catholic priest on call in case there's someone out there who needs to to have a mass at their bedside but whereas the chaplains i think and the and the, the genesis of the idea of chaplaincy was a much broader idea as you talk about holistic it was about looking after the spiritual emotional pastoral well-being of everyone in the hospital and saying there are doctors here to cure your physical needs there are psychiatrists here to cure your mental needs but who is here to look after your spiritual well-being um and in some way it's it's really wonderful that the pandemic might unintentionally have almost reawakened the nhs to the importance of that well i do hope so and 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 maybe this will be one of the redemptive aspects of uh, this terrible time that um a reawakening of the importance of holistic care and let's let's pray that is so hmm just to close, I was really touched by uh, one story one of the chaplains told me in Birmingham who has said, you know, uh, he was he was um, at the start of the pandemic, he had brought in uh, himself and a few other local clergy who had volunteered to be chaplains uh, to be trained how to don and doff PPE appropriately. And he was very aware that at this point there was a s- severe shortage of PPE. Uh, around um, and there was a long list of staff clinical staff in the hospital who needed to be trained uh, and so he was quite nervously bringing his dog collared colleagues into this queue in the hospital to be trained aware of how badly other staff would need the same equipment but he said it was this amazing moment where a senior nurse assistant turned around and warmly welcomed him and said I'm so pleased to see you we're going to need you more than ever and I was just really touched by that and I thought yeah, let's pray that that is something that really takes root and that sticks, that even after we've long forgotten about coronavirus, that chaplains will remain kind of deeply centred at the heart of a hospital. Yep, let's hope so. Thank you for listening to this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you'd like to dig deeper into some of the things we've talked about, you can find lots more to read, listen and watch at John's website. He's uploaded resources on everything from assisted suicide, to the big picture narrative of the Bible, to artificial intelligence, all free to access and share. Please visit johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. The music in the show is by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time.